Can I have that? Yes. This. I need this. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. You did great. Uh, hey, it's our last week in this Ezekiel part. Uh, for those of you who've been following along, uh, every summer we kind of dive deep into some books that you normally don't read. And so this, this summer we started with uh, Ezekiel. Next week we start Jonah. How many of you know the story of Jonah? So you think. Aha. How's that for a teaser? Okay. It's, but this is our last day. So just a little bit of a background for those. And we know that there's vacations, so people are dipping in and out. Here's what's going on in Ezekiel. It's one of the most intense books that was written ever in the Bible because it comes at a very intense time. It's a time in history where Israel was absolutely decimated. Half their population had been removed from their, uh, from their place of living, and they've been taken to Babylon while the remnant are the ones who have stayed there. So they're, they're split. Sometimes households were split. And so the book begins by Ezekiel being uh, sitting on the drainage ditch of Babylon, wondering why God had brought him this far, wondering what God was going to do, because on his birthday, this is when the thing started, it started on his birthday, this was the time where he was going to start his, the job he had been born to do. He was going to be a priest. And now he's sitting on a sewage ditch. And so this is where the book starts. Babylon had come. They had destroyed everything in their city. They destroyed homes, families, people, farms, any source of revenue. And then as we learn later, it gets going on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33. We learn that they even destroyed the temple. And so in Ezekiel's brain and in the exile's brain, they destroyed God himself. And so they had nothing and everything was gone. So Ezekiel starts with this kind of news, it's written to a crew in exile. If you really want to get, uh, if you want to study it more, read Jeremiah and Ezekiel at the same time because Jeremiah was one that was back home in Israel and Ezekiel was in Babylon. And you can see how the two have different ways of looking at the same event. It's fascinating to read. Uh, but they come at this time and, and this book starts with all sorts of visions. The very first vision that we see is this weird chariot uh, kind of thing with four wheels and four heads all pointed the same way. And it's, it's the throne of God. This is where it begins. And the visions just get more intense and intense after that. And so finally, today we're looking at one of the last visions uh, that that Ezekiel comes and tells us. It's probably one of the most popular ones. Uh, it's, this, it's the vision of now that God has done all this, now that exile has happened, God doesn't let anything go wasted. If something happens to you, God is going to use it, and God is using exile to bring forth something even better. So the people of Israel in exile, we learned last week that they were in exile for following the wrong shepherds, and now God's saying, but I'm going to restore you. As you flip through the Old Testament, there's a theme. We always see judgment and punishment. That's what we always look at and go, this is big, scary God. Don't want to do anything. If you're my three-year-old, you yell scary monster and run out of the room. That's what he does. But So we think that God is this vengeance. God is angry all the time. But towards the end of every book, the prophetic books, we see this turn. And today we're going to look at the final, one of the final visions in Ezekiel, but it's where the turn begins. Now he's going to start talking about the promise. What is, what is he going to do in this? How is God going to work now? How is God going to rebuild Israel? Uh, and, and so this is the story we see in God, uh, in Ezekiel. It starts, this is, uh, the people have been deported, and now we, we start seeing that God is going to start making these promises to them. Uh, the first thing he promises is, is, 
is he's going to give them promises. Let's get back to my notes, sorry. And let's get back to the outline that I wrote on Tuesday. So we're going to go back to here. Uh, Today we're going to look at three Ps, okay? Promise, problem, and presence. And three Ps, we're going to read all of these Ps. Promise, problem, presence, as we're driving our purple Prius through Pennsylvania. That was Carrie's joke. I thought it was really funny. And, and so, or it could be puttering around in your purple Prius in Pennsylvania. But this is, this is what God's doing. He's going to promise them something. But with every promise we have, there is always a problem. With every promise that you and I make, there is always a point of tension. But during that point of tension, we're given one last promise. And the promise then is that there is a presence. And so today we're going to look at those. This is the background of Ezekiel. They're in exile. And now we see that God's going to bring them out of it. The first part of this promise that he makes, he tells them, I'm going to give you a new land. In, in verse chapter 36, 24, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you together from all the countries. And I will bring you back to your land. Remember, half of them are gone. Half of them are sitting in exile. This is a promise to them. Yes, you have been beaten Yes, you have been taken away, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to bring you back to your land. Land was a big, important thing to the people of Israel. This is what they wandered the desert for, to get to the promised land. It was a source of identity, and now they're removed. The first promise, God says, I'm going to bring you land. Then he says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities. The promise comes in restoration. And if we look closely there, there's three phases to this promise. The first one, as we just talked about, is a little bit, is is the land. God says, I'm going to bring you back to your place. I'm going to give your nation an identity. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. Isaiah also has this promise in Isaiah 40 through chapter 55. Hosea picks up on this. There is this echo through the prophets of coming back, and it all centers back to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3 uh, uh, through 5. It says this in Deuteronomy 30, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. Do you see how this ties in? Moses talked about this centuries before. This is going to happen. You're not going to be able to keep God's laws. You're going to wander off. And Moses says, this is going to take place in verse 4. Even though you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your ancestors. The people were deported in the first place. The people who were sent out, they knew this promise was, was there. They would have studied this promise. But the people who were sent out weren't the ones seeing that there's going to be restoration. There's these things with God's promise. He promises you something, but it doesn't always mean that you're going to have it take fulfillment in the way that you thought it was going to take fulfillment. God has promised us things, but it doesn't always look like the way you want it to look like. So imagine, you've been taken into exile. You know this promise from from Deuteronomy. You know what God says about land. You know the promises uh, that he said to Abraham. These are things that you would have known and studied. And you're sitting here in exile. It doesn't make God's promises null and void. It just means that it's not going to look like the way you thought it was going to look like. God promises this. And this is him coming good on it now. I'm going to bring you back. 
I'm going to, I'm, I keep my word. God is a God who is, keeps his word. So the first part of the promise was geographical. The next part of the promise we see is, is personal. I will, I will wash you with water and make you clean. This is a promise by God to remove the marks of sin. If you were to go back to Ezekiel 36, you would see their sin pretty much detailed in very explicit terms of what they've done. And it is rather confusing, so we didn't really go into it today. But if you want, go back to the first part of Ezekiel 36, you'll see it. It's, it's, it goes against the Levitical code and God's saying, look, you are disgraceful to me. But I'm not going to leave you in that most disgraceful place. I'm going to wash you clean. And he's referencing the Leviticus codes of ceremonial cleaning. What they would do is they would have the ashes from the sacrifice that they just had. They would mix it in water and you would wash yourself with the ashes of the sacrifice, the atonement. Why does that sound important? Because now the atonement is on you. This is a nod to what's happening in the New Testament where Paul says Jesus has covered for us. So when you wash yourself with the ashes in water, you are taking on the covering for your sin. So when this says, I'm going to cleanse you, I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to cover it. It's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He is the propitiation or the covering of our sin. Ezekiel is getting very messianic here. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus covers our sin. When we say yes to him, Colossians says that our life is taken and put, in, in, and put inside Jesus. So no longer are we the ones who are seen. Instead, the sacrifice is seen for, uh, instead of us. All of our sins have been wiped away. This is what he's promising. You're going to get clean. And then the last promise is this. I, it's geographical, personal. The last one is spiritual. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you look at Israel's past, long before exile, they had this pattern and they, where they showed that they were willfully, pers- persistently, incorrigibly bent on to disregard God's commands. It's like they didn't even care and this was the normal way for them to live. They were a bunch of three-year-olds, right? Because what do three-year-olds do? Don't do this. Watch me. And they go ahead and do whatever you told them not to do. This is what Israel was doing. They, they were bent to break the God's laws. And so it's not that they just wouldn't keep it. As you scratch further down into the reason of the Torah, the reason of the laws, it's that they couldn't keep it. The law, as Paul will later say in Romans, was never meant to be fulfilled by us. It always pointed to the idea that you and I can't keep all 613 of these laws. It's not just 10. There's 613 of them. We can't keep them. And so, this was, and so when God says, I'm going to put a new heart in you, I'm going to take your heart of stone, which Moses also references in Deuteronomy, and I'm going to replace it with actually a heart of flesh. He's saying, I'm going to make it able for you to live these laws. If we zoom out a little bit, we see geographical, we see personal, we see spiritual. There's something else going on here. Each one of us are made up of three different uh, forms, right? Yes. Okay. We have our spiritual side, we have our soul, and we have our body. Body, soul, spirit. That's what makes you up. The spirit is the deepest core of who you are. The soul is where we get our reason, intellect, will, and then our bodies are our bodies. 
what this is saying, it's, it's uh, Ezekiel saying, there's going to be a redemption to you where God is not just going to uh, transform you from the outside in. He's going to reshape you and rebuild you from the inside out. This is why Paul will say in some verses, awaken our spirits so that we might follow your will. What happens when you say yes to Jesus? He comes in and awakens you from the inside, the deepest core of who you are, awakens your spirit where the image of God lies. And then your spirit then transforms the way you think, will, and act. That is your soul. And then your body reflects what is the change happening on the inside. This is what Ezekiel is pointing at. You are being renewed 100% holistically from the inside out. Paul alludes to this in Romans 12. He says, uh, therefore, we've been, uh, do not be conformed to this world anymore. Don't change from the outside in. Don't let the pressures from the world change who you are. Instead, be transformed from the inside out, allowing the Spirit of God to renew you, strengthen you, and change you from the inside out. It is more a holistic way of changing. It's a holistic way of being. This is what, what Ezekiel is getting at. And he says, but how is he going to do this? How does it happen? How do we change? In Ezekiel uh, thirty-six twenty-seven, I will finally put my Spirit in you, and you'll be able to, to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a significant phrase, and it's easy to miss when you go. This is the first time that the Spirit has been put within somebody. Every other time, if you look, it's upon. The Spirit is upon. The Spirit came upon Bezalel. The Spirit came upon other people. So it's this outside force. But now, something shifted here. The Spirit will indwell you, and then the Spirit will move you. It's a new way of living. The word for uh, move is the Hebrew word asah. You really want to say it? Asah. All right, well done. We'll get to you guys over here. Uh, you got one more coming. The, ne- the next one's more fun. Uh, what this, it, said, it, it can be translated make you follow, but not in a way that we make you do things as if you're a robot with no free will. Like, the way to translate it, the way to read it, is it makes it possible for you to follow. I'm going to make it so you can actually do this. I'm going to give you a newness in your heart, in the deepest core of you, so you'll be able to do this. And how does God make this possible? By awakening the inner, the inner spirit of ourselves. When our spirit is revived at the deepest core, our being radiates outward and transforms our soul, changes our will and emotions, and we can move, live, and breathe and being controlled and changed by where the Spirit is taking us. Spirit transforms the soul, which transforms our bodies. God is saying, I'm going to make you new every single part of you. And what this does for us is it gives us this last promise. All of this promise comes down to one word. He's going to give you peace. And then you will live, this is in verse 28, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This, is, this whole miracle, as you read through, this whole promise is based on God renewing his name in the land. The people of Israel who were supposed to embody what God looked like had done a pretty poor job at doing this. And God says, look, I'm going to promise you all of this, not for your gain, 
but so that when people look at you, they're going to see me. This promise isn't about you. It's never about you. It's about portraying what God looks like around you and in you. And this is what, Paul, what Ezekiel is saying. This is for God and for his glory. And so that his name will be great in all of you. You will be my people and everyone's going to look at you and say, their God is powerful. Their God is up to something. Their God is a God who restores. This is the promise, complete restoration. With every promise comes a problem. And so that's what we see next. Every promise comes a challenge. Whenever you say you're going to do something, if you promise to go somewhere tonight, there's going to be a conflicting invitation where you really want to go to that, right? It always happens. And so this is what happens here. There's a, there's a problem. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. We'll go through verse 3. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Here's the first observation. There's going to be a few observations here. Ezekiel is a priest. It's not like him, and he shouldn't be. It's against the rules for him to stand in a cemetery. So the first thing is God takes him to a valley full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, only you know. So the second observation we can make here, God takes Ezekiel to a place where there's some valleys, where there's this valley and there was some kind of battle that happened a long time ago. There, there's, it's like a mass grave. Uh, and so, but it's not just that it's fresh. These bodies have been there for a while. The sun had probably bleached the bones. It's just a valley of bones. They're really, really, really dead. It's not just like they're kind of dead or I'm not dead yet. I feel like going for a walk if you're into Monty Python. It's just these people are super dead. And so Ezekiel's walking back and forth in them. And that's the second observation. He walks back and forth. He's just not looking down and saying, Wow, it's a lot of bones. He's in there, and we get this picture that he's looking around. He's trying to see what's happened, and he's inside the bones. He's examining them. He's seeing it's a place of death, and this is what Israel needs to be uh, delivered from. And the last thing is we see that God asks him a question. Can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's answer. I don't know. You tell me. And he says that. Oh, I don't know. You are God. You tell me if they can live or not. How's that sound? Here's Ezekiel. He knows that there's a resurrection that's coming. God's clear about that. The, the Hebrews thought that there's going to be a resurrection. That's a given. But God's asking about these bones, and it's not resurrection at the end of days. It's an actual, can I bring these back to life? And Ezekiel says, I don't know. I mean, I know you can. You can raise things to dead. The question is now, can will you do it he's surrounded by death this is where he's been his, since we started the book he's surrounded by bones what used to be a great army and now it's dead dry been dead for a while and all hope is gone and God says can you do it and Ezekiel says I, if you want I guess you could doesn't sound hopeful right in verse 11, he says, And then God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And they say, Our bones are dried up, 
and our hope is gone, and we are cut off. So here are these bones, these dead places, and this is the, the sentiment that Israel has. There's no more that God will ever do amongst us. We're dead. There's no life that could ever happen. There's no hope for us to be in. It's always going to be like this. We're going to live. We're going to die in exile. We will always be slaves. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever looked at your situation and said, God, I know you can because you're God, you're sovereign. You can, there's not a rock too heavy for you to lift or whatever the riddle is. Have you ever looked at your situation and said, God, I know you can but it's been going on for so long. The question is, isn't can you? The question is, will you? Will you actually do something? Have you sat with that question? God, I know you can heal, but will you? God, I know you can comfort, but will you? God, I know you can open doors, but all I hear is no. We hear God's promises for new life. We hear God's promise for restoration. We hear the promise that he'll watch over care for each one of us. We read the parable about the birds having not to worry about where they find food or the flowers not having to worry about what kind of clothes they have in Matthew 5 because God takes care of them. But the question always comes to us, is it really going to happen? Because all that you might see around you is a reminder of death. All you might see is bones piling up everywhere. Sometimes it's hard to hold out hope when all you see is no progress being made. We felt this way for five years. There were times of no work. There were times of hardly any work. There were times of bad work environments for both Carrie and I. There were times where we had a sick parent, ultimately a death of a parent. There were miscarriages. There was disappointment after disappointment. There's family members with mental illness. There's family members uh, battling addiction. And it became to a time where it's like, God, all of these things happening around us, all we see is death. God, will you even help us here? In the middle of those times, it became so difficult to say, God, you will. But, but what's taking so long is actually what we began to say. The bones began to pile up. And our doubts began to rule and our hopes began to fade. And it felt like we were not among dry bones for the longest time. It felt like we were dry bones. That there's no life inside of us. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe some of you are in that right now. It sounds dramatic, but really, if you've experienced at times like this, it's exactly what the feeling is. David wrote psalms about this. God, will you move? Will you deliver me from my enemies? And then he wrote a song, and then Bono took over. How long will we wait for you to move in Psalm 40? How long must we cry out for you to move? Habakkuk is a whole book asking that same question. How long must this go on like this? This is a common theme in Scripture. It's a common theme inside of us. That's the problem we come to. We see this promise that God's going to move, but everything around us tells us the exact opposite. But then that promise, there's one more, there's a presence. Because we don't see God moving doesn't mean that he isn't. It doesn't mean that God is absent. Because in the middle of the dry bones, we're offered this final element. Look in verse 4 of chapter 37. And then he said to me, prophesy to the bones and say to them, 
dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons and make your flesh come upon and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. There's a word in this section of scripture for these next 14 verses and it's used 10 times. It's translated in different ways. In English, we have three words for it. It's the Hebrew word ruah. All of us, come on, ruah, okay. There's one more word we're gonna learn. It's, it's used this many, t- it's used uh, 10 times in these 14 verses. We, it means breath, it means spirit, it means wind, it means all three of those things. This is what uh, it, it means for us, but in Hebrew, it has one meaning. Spirit, ruah, it's our breath, it's our spirit, it, it, it's the wind. It's one word in Hebrew, but in English we have several different translations for it. And through the Bible and the whole ancient Near East, it's understood as spirit. And we translate it in ways, and all three we find them in this passage. In English, we like to separate it out. We like to say, no, that's wind, that's not a breath, unless, unless someone's... A, breathing hard into you, that, that, that's, that's wind. We see the difference, right? There's breath. We have a breath. And so we like to separate. And then our spirit is in the core of our being. But in Hebrew and in Greek, ruah and pneuma mean breath, spirit, and wind. We define breath as moving in and as air moving in and out of our lungs. It's concrete. It's automatic. It's mechanical. It's repetitive. It's a function. That's what breath is. Spirit is this abstract, esoteric. It's it's a gift of God. These are the way we differentiate what's happening here. They have nothing in common in our language, right? Breath and spirit don't really mix together. But the same word here is used to describe both. Two things that have nothing in common in English, but here they mean the exact same thing. This is why this word is so fascinating. Thanks for geeking out with me. Uh, in the spirit, uh, if we, if we dig deeper to our word for spirit, we can actually see that it means the same thing. The word for spirit comes to us from the Latin word spiritus. And then that one comes from the Latin word spirari, which we get the word res- uh, res- respirate, which means to breathe. So the word spirit means to breathe. We think they're different, but they're actually the exact same thing. Breath and spirit are intimately related to to us as well, and you can't live without either of them. One author said that the breath you have, the very breath that you breathe in and out, what you just did is actually the intimate kiss of the divine into your life. That's what the breath is. It's God in you, all around you. So we think we can run away from God. You can't run away from your own breath. We think we can push God away. Do you try, try not breathing? How'd that go? It, it, it doesn't work. It's something that's automatic. We think that we're in the middle of these dry bones all by ourselves. God has abandoned us. And what happens? Are you breathing? He's there. His name Yahweh is actually, some, some writers have translated to be the God who is there closer than your breath. When we think that the problems are too high and God's promises are not going to happen, he's literally right under your nose. Unless you have a cold, then he's right in front of your mouth. He is there in your breath. 
He's not going away from you. You can't get away from him. Are you looking for God in the middle of your boneyard? In the middle of your wasteland? The promise is this. There's going to be a presence. Look no further than your breath. Even when the bones are piled up around you, when God is seemingly seemingly absent, the reality is he's closer than you can ever imagine. And then watch what happens here in in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. He's just doing what he's told. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. This is the reverse of Indiana Jones and what happens when he looks at the Ark of the Covenant. This, but God isn't done here. These bones look like they're alive. They're standing. They have skin, muscles, tendons. They look like they're living. But notice what it says at the end of verse 8. But there was no breath in them. They looked alive, but what were they missing? The breath. Now watch what happens in verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And then verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. Did you notice this vision comes in two stages? Uh, The first one, everything looks alive, but they weren't. Now imagine if Ezekiel was this. Oh, cool, they're standing. Way to go, God. Great job. Let's go back to Babylon now. This is done. The miracle, the vision would be half complete. There's initial aspect of living that wasn't really there. They looked alive. They had all the traits that we might think they're alive when someone's standing there. They don't think they're dead anymore. There's no more bones. They're covered. They they look the part, but the fact is they were only living half-lived lives. In fact, they weren't even halfway alive. They just looked the part. For many of us, this is where we settle. We've been in the bones for so long that we've given up life, uh, a hope for a new life, and we'd settled down for a watered-down weak way of living where it might look like we're alive, but the fact is we're really missing it. Our lack of hope has drained any support or any drive for it to be different. And we limit what God wants to do because we never expect him to do anything more than what we can see. It's, this is what we think about when all we do is study God. It's knowing things about him. It's knowing all the right answers. And there's no living, breathing relationship in there. It's tendons and bones and skin. You look busy. You look like you're alive. You look like you're doing the job. But really, there's no life in you. And the truth of the matter is God is wanting to do more. There's more than just standing there. God is wanting to bring more than simple signs of life. He's wanting to bring actual life. We're not promised signs of life. We're promised the actual source of life, an awakening of your spirit. It's not just given knowledge of what God can and can't do like Ezekiel had. We're given the undeniable presence of God that transforms every single part about us. And the last part of verse nine, what's it say? So that you might actually live. Here's one of the funnest words in Hebrew. The word for live is the Hebrew word chayah. Seriously. You want to say it? Go. Haya. Yeah, like karate. Haya. You got you to clear your throat a little bit. Haya. This means to live, but it doesn't mean just like live. 
It means to remain alive, to be alive, to sustain life, not just, not just normal life, but a prosperous life, to live forever, to be restored to life or health. In the New Testament, we see two different words. We see a number of words for life. We have bios, which just means life. And then Jesus says zoe, which means a full life. This is close to what zoe would be. The full life, the supernatural life, the life that we're all desiring. This is what you and I are promised. It's a presence that though we are surrounded by bones of death, we have a presence flowing through our lungs that is actually able to give us life. That we are, though we are surrounded by exile, we can still be living in the exile. I get pretty wound up when we talk about this, so because we're talking about the spirit, and I think it's something that we all need desperately in our lives. So just a little bit on it. Corinthians, Paul says this: his words were not wise or persuasive, but rather they were a demonstration of the spirit's power, in order that their faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. He's talking about the spirit, what pushes people through. This is in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 2. Later in the same letter, he says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. Yet here's what we often see around us. And I see it in my own life, and I'm not a fan of it. I, I hear a lot of talk about God. I see a lot of facades about God in my own life. And I hear a lot about human wisdom. But what I personally long to see is more of God's presence and more of God's power. Maybe you're with me. Maybe you've been here for so long and you're tired of just seeing the ins and outs. You're tired of just the skeletal remains of what used to be powerful. Maybe you hunger for this in your life where you see God's power flowing in, around, and through you. I'm tired of just seeing that. I'm tired of merely talking about God. I want to see God move. I want to see him move through you. I want to see him move through me. I want to see him through, move through Bethany Ballard. I want to see him move through the church. I want to see his presence here. I want people to look around and go, there's something happening. And we acknowledge that God's presence, that the presence doesn't sneak out like it did in, in the first part of Ezekiel. We all know that there's more to this. This is what's promised to us. But most of us are so surrounded by death, by the bones of what used to be, yet we've given up hope and wondering what if God can actually do what he promised and work through us and in us and around us in powerful ways that we'd never uh, begin to imagine. What if the Spirit wants to do something in you, but in your theological construct, you're like, no, I've seen it abused, therefore it's not going to happen. What happens? It's not going to happen. Ezekiel says there's a breath that is coming to us that will make you fully alive and the power that is beyond any facade that we can have that is unexplainable will happen to you. This is what God is wanting to do. This is what happens after the resurrection in Acts. This is what Joel 2 is talking about where there is something coming and it's not just going to be a temporary thing. It's going to indwell you and move you and change your world. But here's the key. You have to let it. You have to be open to it. 
But some of us have been stuck in the dry bones for so long, the dry bones of theological study, the dry bones of biblical study, that we've missed the most important part of it. And because of that, we're standing there, we look like we're alive, we go through the motions, maybe you come to church, maybe you're in a gathering, maybe you're serving everywhere else, you're going through the motions of following Christ, but you're missing the power behind it. This is the life that is promised to us. And my prayer for us is that we get past the boneyard. That we ask God to renew the hope inside of us. That we can actually still be alive if we pay attention to what God is doing. And so today, this might find, this might find yourself, uh, you might find yourself in various places. We can be many places in this text. And that's the beauty of scripture. We're all over the place in it. Maybe you've been staying in the dry bones for way too long. And maybe you're like, God can't move in this. So maybe the baby step for you, and we're all about baby steps because that's, that's the best way to go. Maybe the baby step for you is to simply this, hope. Maybe you're like this and you're like Ezekiel and saying, this situation, dead. It's always going to be like this, dead. Bones upon bones upon bones upon bones, never going to change. So maybe the challenge for you is to say, God, I'm willing to hope again. There was a friend of mine who, who did this, and he, he, uh, his, his hope looked like, I'm going to pray for the first time in nine years, and not just for the meal. For the first time in nine years, this is what hope looks like. I'm going to pray. Not at church, I'm going just to pray. Small prayers. My Father who art in heaven, that's all he can get through. That's hope. Because it's hope that something will change in his life. And he's opening himself up to the possibility that God wants to do something. Perhaps you've been here and you're realizing, you know, I'm going through the motions. I'm just living. And I don't feel like this is what fully God wants for me. Maybe the, 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 the first step for you is saying, okay, God, there's more. And maybe you've prayed, you're not like my friend who hasn't done that for nine years, but maybe your prayer turns to something like this, God, show me more. And you open yourself up to it. There's nothing wrong with asking for more from God. Actually, it's rather encouraging. He encourages us. He's a good father who wants to bestow gifts upon gifts upon gifts if you position yourself to receive them. So maybe you need to start hope again. Or maybe you need to say, okay, God, I'm ready for more. And in your life, you start beginning to open yourself up to the possibility that there might be something more for you. And leaning in to where you feel the Spirit is starting to take you. I don't know where else it could hit you. But the truth of the matter is, we can live this life. And if, and if, you have, if you're living the Christian life, but it is with the absence of the Spirit, you're not really living the Christian life. This is what Ezekiel tells us. There is a spirit in you ready to come out if you allow it to come out. God is wanting to renew you. That's the promise. That's the hope of Ezekiel. And that's the hope you and I have today. And in that spirit, if we continue, and if I had 30 more minutes, we can go into it. There is more to your life than just that because that spirit gives us another P, which is purpose. 
for you were uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good things, is what Ephesians says. You've been bought, you've been sealed, you've been brought into the family of God, you've been indwelt with the Spirit so that you can do good things. The Spirit gives us purpose. To a people who were wondering what their purpose were, God says, I got, a, I got a purpose for you. It's to bring hope to the world around you. So when they look at you, they see me. And it's our purpose as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in, in this crazy text, we have this hope. That though we might ourselves feel like we're dry bones, wasted away, you come to us and you breathe on us this breath of life that's found in Genesis, and it, it's here, you are recreating us and breathing hope and giving peace so that we might truly live. God, my prayer for my friends here today is that your spirit would begin to stir in their spirits that the part deep within their spirit would be awoken, as Paul writes about, and that, and that spirit would wake up and transform us, that there would be breakthroughs, that there would be changes, that there would be hope, that there would be peace. Lord, I pray for people to get pictures. I pray for people to have words. I pray for that to happen in our community here so that we might know that you are still working among us and we might see the evidence that we're not just people standing around looking like we're alive, but we're actually alive. That we might see fruit come from this. Fruits of love, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness. And that our city would be transformed. That our neighborhoods would be transformed. That our homes and our families would be transformed and that our lives might be changed. You didn't come just to leave us the way we are. That's where you found us. You came that you might change us and bring us life. And so Lord, we ask for that life today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.